it's a great privilege to have um, Philip James come to talk to us today. I asked what should I say. Uh, he said say nothing, which is a tough call. Other than I've known him for a long time. I can't remember the first time I met you. It's just deep history somewhere. Um, uh, he's all over the place. He does everything. He doesn't shy from controversy or saying what needs to be said. For those of you who are interested in body mass index, he's co-author of this thing, so all the standards for body mass index really come from Prakash Shetty and, and, and Phil James. Um, this one's got Prakash's signature on it, so Phil, you better sign it as well. Okay. So that becomes a more historical document. Um, <clears throat> Phil graduated from University College London. He spent three years in Jamaica um, he was a Harvard Research Fellow. Um, he um, was a senior lecturer at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He was assistant director of the MRC Dunn Nutrition Unit in Cambridge. He's director of the Route Research Institute. He's, he wrote the Food Standards Agency proposals for Tony Blair. He is chair of the uh, UN Millennium Commission on Global Issues Relating to Nutrition. Um, he is the Vice President of the International Union of Nutritional Sciences, so I think we're extremely privileged to have him. Phil, tell us what needs to be said. And then, when Philip has finished talking, we'll then go into the room next door where there is coffee and sandwiches, and we can have a roundtable discussion. Thank you. It always makes me feel horribly out of the People like standing sort of start cracking about all the mishaps that I've had in my life. Um, I see some very old friends here, and I've, I'm just great to be in Oxford um, again. Uh, I've not been back in the UK for a couple of months, uh, except for 24 hours. So I'm giving an international perspective, and some of you are going to ask about the UK. I think I've got one slide on the UK, um, and it's a reminder to me that... Um, some places get lost. And uh, chronic disease, I was handed in WHO last Tuesday um, the Lancet series. Don't know if any of you have read it. Just showing that actually these are um, poor countries of the world. And the stack of chronic disease is phenomenal. And it's very interesting because actually you can't get beagle hole. Um, a great uh, set of good marks because he really managed to persuade people that this was a problem. Uh, when I uh, read, wrote the first chronic disease report on linking malnutrition in the developing world with chronic disease in the developing world in 1990, uh, it was seen as pretty outrageous and far too complex and rather academic. Now it's a fundamental issue which I'm going to highlight uh, if I'm going. I'm going to, having discovered where you're coming from in general, I'm going to skip some slides. Um, but this simply says that um, 50 and shortly 60% um, of the burden of disease in the developing world, contrary to popular belief, comes from chronic diseases. And everybody's been obsessed for, for, with infectious disease, understandably. But, and it's completely, this, this is not actually a priority yet for WHO. Al Alwan takes up the post of the Middle East 
in, on Friday. He rang me on the way here, desperate to try to get a higher profile within WHO, because the new Margaret Chan's Director General has put Africa, women and infectious disease as her priorities for the next four years. That, and effectively, they've had a 60% cut in budget to cope with this problem in the last uh, 12 months. Um, <coughs> one of the things that they haven't quite taken on board is the fact that we've known since just after the Second World War that if you look across the world and look at heart disease, for example, you have a phenomenal um, relationship to saturated fat. Uh, fascinating, uh, I've just had to help launch a cancer report brilliantly done with all the rigour of science involving, I don't know whether Oxford University was involved, in systematic reviews and so on, based on cohort studies. I know if you are into the whole business, there's been a new academic medical sciences analysis of how you come up with causes. If you take cohort studies, you come to the conclusion that saturated fat had almost nothing to do with heart disease because you don't see it in the cohort because the variation in fat is so limited and actually the response of individuals is so marked on a genetic basis that you completely fail to see it in practically all cohort studies. And it's only when you get detailed metabolic studies combined with ecological studies and then intervention studies that you begin to understand the fundamental link. <coughs> but in the series on chronic disease this last month, in The Lancet, they say that the evidence on saturated fat is not very clear. It's overwhelming uh, with huge numbers of intervention studies and so forth. So it's fascinating how we still get hung up and this is one of the problems because the science of how you think about global issues as distinct from US or UK issues hasn't been taken on board. Um, let me just throw in something that's not often recognised. Classic key study. On the left, in Northern Europe, the more you smoke, the worse your heart disease. In the Mediterranean and actually in Japan, the gradient is dramatically reduced. And actually we've known for a long time biologically that you have to have the prodromal fundamental problem of saturated fat changing your lipids. Then you get all the amplification from high blood pressure and smoking. It's quite interesting and that interaction hasn't really been taken on board in most of the calculations. That doesn't mean to say the smoking is not important. It's enormously important. But actually, that interaction hasn't been taken on board. <coughs> so chronic disease, it's quite surprising that simple, crude studies still make the headlines. And this is my old friend, Salim Yusuf, who used to work here with young Peter and Dahl. He actually identified the risk factors relating to heart disease, not simply in the West, but in 52 countries. And, the, and there you are. Uh, that top is a surrogate for cholesterol linked to saturated fat. And then, of course, smoking. But these two astonished us, psychosocial and abdominal obesity. Psychosocial, I've been taught for years, was a load of rubbish. And if you read those papers, it's extremely impressive. 
the second paper, on how you assess this. And I had to be taught when I worked in Jamaica that the burden of mental disease is phenomenal in the developing world as well as here. Now, <coughs> one of the problems that we've got is that you can cope with heart disease if you're intelligent as a public health person. It's much more difficult to cope with obesity, as I'll come to. Here are criteria, which Stan's just highlighted. That upper limit of 25 for normal, it's not normal, it's the politically acceptable value based on pre-Second World War mortality insurance statistical figures that we produced 25, 30 years ago. And the morbidity relating, this is of course relative risk, to these three conditions starts at about a BMI of 21. So in our global analyses, to our horror and to the extreme dismay of the United States, the best optimum population average weight corresponds to a BMI of 21. Average population. As seen in China in 1982 and also in Thailand and so forth. At that point you have minimum undernutrition and minimum overweight. And this is what's going on. It's quite phenomenal. Uh, this is a stat that Rachel uh, put up recently. We're running at about um, 1.5, 1.6 billion people in the world, more than the so-called hungry, who've got this problem. And it's everywhere. But what I'd like to highlight is something that we'll publish in a month or so time. And that is a huge analysis which I think validates the supposition of the years ago that if you're an Asian man compared with a so-called Caucasian man, the risk of, for example, diabetes is much greater. And this is known, Michael Marmot actually published this 15 years ago in the UK. And the same is true for women. And what that means is that you have a super-sensitive population. It only happens to be the Asian population. So perhaps the Caucasians are the minority who are resistant to the development of diabetes when you put on weight. Got it? And if you actually take just classic um, one of our societies and you take the Chinese living in China, here's the rate in green of diabetes. In blue, it's a glucose intolerance, which means you're on the way to develop diabetes and already showing abnormalities. And if you take the Chinese in Singapore, <coughs> and they went there about, what, two, three, four hundred years ago? One in three of all the Singaporeans driving and walking around Singapore have either got diabetes or will get it shortly. Where, where would India be on this map? Uh, India is actually, it's running at about 10%. I'll come to India in a second. <coughs> if you look for diabetes in the world, uh, where is it? Asia is the centre of diabetes, contrary to everybody's understanding. They have no, under, no glimmer that this is the crisis that's ramp, rampaging. 
But if you look at the, um, this may be updated now, but I was astonished to discover they use this a lot in the Middle East. But if you ask for the highest prevalence of actual monitored diabetes, then in fact they're there Singapore. But look at Germany, Spain, and then you have the Pacific Islands in the Middle East. That's for age-specific um, rates, standardised in an appropriate way so that there's no um, <coughs> funny stuff. And the question is, are those people genetically different? Why are they so susceptible? And if you say, well, they're a bit susceptible, I'm just throwing in, we published, uh, when? Two years ago. Uh, proposition, this is diabetes again. Mexicans in blue. If you take body mass index or even waist circumference here, men or women. Hispanics in Mexico, this is national, a national study, beautifully done. And we've taken the non-Hispanic whites from the United States, put them all standardized equivalent so that there's no population structure problems, and your prevalence of diabetes is higher again in Mexicans. Hang on. I'm getting worried now because I've said the Pacific Islands, the Asia. Uh, now I'm putting in Hispanics. Actually, you see the same in, uh, in Jamaica. You see the same in uh, South Africa. What's going on? What I'm suggesting is that all of us pompous asses that go to WHO, that come from the UK and the United States, we tend to give a completely false impression of the burden of disease and some of the big issues because we've had this gorgeous data from the UK and from the Scandinavia and the US and we haven't until recently realised that we have to think in a different perspective. <clears throat> this is hypertension, same business. And the question is, what's going on? Everybody knows about the nutrition transition. There's the classic key, saturated fat. This is what everybody talks about, and it's still a huge problem. I could spend a whole lecture on the outrageous political system that's failing to cope with the Millennium Goals, but that's another story. And what I'd like to highlight is that I think there's some fascinating stuff coming down the line, and I'm not going to dwell on it. But do you, do you, does any of you know about the YY paradox? This is... Uh, John Newton from London, and this is uh, my dear friend um, uh, Yasnik from Pune in India. They have the same BMI, 22.3, but this elegant young Brit has a body fat of 9, and my dear old friend Ranjan has a body fat of 21. If you look at little babes in India, <coughs> they're fat, <coughs> they're fat blobs. And Indian adults, for the same weight, have more fat than lean tissue. And um, <coughs> things are going badly for the Indians, you see. This is the only unpublished um, slide. If you, and it comes from rural to urban transition. And just look at it. Um, take the BMI over 21. In other words, what about your overweight? Look at the jump from 5-6% to a quarter or two-thirds, depending on men or women, okay? That's just going near Bangalore and coming into Bangalore. 
And look at the fat intake, trebles. Sugar intake goes up, what, uh, uh, six times. Salt intake, four times. Occupational activity collapses. Here's the stuff that we produced on inactivity, physical activity level. It's quite astonishing. Diabetes, you were asking, 22%. India is facing a total <coughs> and utter catastrophe and is now, with Srinath Reddy's help, setting up the first public health institutes. Uh, but they're not doing anything, despite being screamed at for 20 years. And the hypertensives and the heart disease are also escalating. And I think that we should get away from the idea that this is intrinsically genetic. And there's increasing evidence from Yasnik coming up with gorgeous evidence now that depending upon what the mother's eating during pregnancy, it determines whether that babe is smaller, fatter, insulin resistant, and has the early signs of high blood pressure. And certainly by the age of four, and then six and eight, with his cohort studies, he's showing a super sensitivity to these problems. And it looks to me as though it's fetal malnutrition. So I think the majority of the world has been like what Britain was in the 18th century, 19th century. This is the life cycle stuff that we produced in the report. This is what we're all used to. And if you think back, most of you are your fathers and grandfathers and mothers shorter than you. We've seen that transition in the, in the UK over a period of 120 years. This is what's now going on in the rest of the world. And um, what's happening is actually there's a dramatic transition. And it, curiously enough, people are becoming, if they have this early, what I call nutritional insult, they appear to be following <coughs> to abdominal fat. So if you get fat, you put it down on your belly. And there are all sorts of fascinating, I won't go into it because that's not your field, but all sorts of beautiful experiments showing that you alter the brain control of cortisone metabolism, uh, depending upon your nutritional intake. <coughs> and if you go to Central America, you show that in, in purple, those women who had constant body fats in green, the purple, the fat belly people were those women or men who were stunted as children. In other words, Something happens early on in life, and if you then put on weight, you're in trouble because you put it on selectively in your abdomen and you've reorganized or reprogrammed your body system. And if you think about stunting and small birth weight, I'm not going to go into that in big detail, uh, whereas it, it's actually majorities in South Asia compared with Latin America and Africa, and here's Bangladesh and India in terms of. of um, in terms of um, low birth weight, and with that goes 60% stunting in parts of India. So in fact, you have to, I now go around the world and tell everybody, <coughs> you've, got, you've got all these people developing diabetes, it comes in their 50s, they're super sensitive, here's the evidence from their own country. Why is that? It's because the population now presenting to doctors 
Well, the normal <coughs> circumstances were tremendously I worked on Chalibur nutrition in the 1960s. It was a huge problem globally. And I think the majority of the world has, is going through that weird dual handicap, which actually uh, Barker highlighted in the people whom he studied in the 1920s and 30s. That's when they were born in Hertfordshire. And I won't go through this. Uh, depending upon your folic acid and B12 intake, um, you appear to have big problems. This is sexy science, which simply says that you need folic acid up there at the top, and you need B12, which is in the middle there, to spin carbon units, to build the DNA and the fundamental components of your body, and you control which gene you allow to operate, father, mother, extent, by methylating. To methylate, you need the DNA. Do they need the folic acid B12? And what Yasnik will be talking about very shortly is that three quarters of the population of India is B12 deficient. <coughs> and the worst handicap is occurring in babies where we throw in folic acid and iron because we've all known that Indian women are anemic because of their diet and everything else. And if you throw in a lot of folic acid, you distort this system. And those babies are the smallest, the fattest, the, big, the most prone to diabetes when, when they're born. This is the mechanism. So this is what we're now seeing across the world. That we've got this prodromal system of intergenerational <coughs> problems. And then we have this rapid weight gain because the West is taking over. Culturally, we're, we're completely uh, annihilating traditional diets and ways of life. And so you get fat belly people, so-called metabolic syndrome, and you get women <coughs> diabetes in pregnancy, and this is the spin that is going out of control. The implications for public health are completely different, if you think about it, because it means that you have to think in a completely new way about the fact that you need to intervene immediately for young women and girls as they go into pregnancy. And you're only going to get the benefit, as Tim suggested for the UK beastie, 40 years, 50 years later. But if you don't move now, you're actually locking in a huge handicap that's going to affect every cohort that comes. And the kids are getting fatter wherever you look. So, okay, so you've still got low birth weight. You've also got tremendous stunting, 50, 60% in South Asia. And now you're getting stunted fat children. And that's the classic that you see. It's a huge problem in South America where I go shortly. And if you have that, wherever you go, there's an epidemic, if you call it that of childhood obesity. And here's the latest data from Denmark, Sorensen, uh, published a couple of months ago, showing that if you look at a child age 7 to 13, and in Scandinavia they monitor them from birth to death, you can show that 7 to 13 year old boys and girls, if they're plump, with one standard deviation from the mean, 
there's extra risk of heart disease and cardiovascular disease and stroke, <coughs> stroke and death is higher. And the longer you persist you in childhood with that overweight, the greater the long-term prospect of those children as adults having premature death from cardiovascular disease. So we're beginning to link this life cycle in an astonishing way. So having made you all depressed, um, everybody decided that you've got to do something about it. And here, how many of you have ever seen this or heard of it? Have, have any of you? Yeah, okay. It's very impressive. When I go to ministries of health around the world, almost no ministry official has ever heard of this apparently very important document. And we're still, um, you know, we're trying to do with that, and we've still got poverty galore, and the ways of coping with it are useless. So what are you going to do? Well, it's perfectly simple, don't you know? All you've got to do is to tell people to be physically active and to change the diet. I mean, and it's that so, and we've been bleating on about this for about 30 years. Why are we so completely ineffective? And I've just chosen a slide when I launched the cancer report in Washington a few weeks ago and I modified it a bit but you know it's the standard stuff and you may then say well standard stuff but here in Europe we've known that the standard diet is of this nature if you take the optimum diet as we now understand it in the Mediterranean and these were studies done and collated by NFL Luzzi uh, in Italy and Greece Huge amounts of vegetables, fruit, remarkably small amount of animal protein. But what do we actually see is that if you take the world and take simply the fat intake as a crude index, then as you go up, you have a higher and higher prevalence of overweight. Now, very interesting from a policy point of view, the, oh, I wonder if this works. No, it doesn't. Um, you take, we take an optimum of 30%. Why do we take an optimum of 30% for total fat? It comes from heart disease, where Jeffrey Rose and oh gosh, from the receptor, uh, in 1982 in WHO, the Brits and the Americans were up at 42%. And they say the way to drop saturated fat is to drop total fat. So they said, oh, well, actually, they were being a bit wild. Let's bring it down to 30%. Then they discovered, because WHO has a few odd bonds for China, so the Chinese and, and Japanese fat intake was 15%. So they said, fine. And they don't have heart disease. Okay, so 15% is the lower limit. Okay? <coughs> and that persists to this day in every policy document I've ever seen. And it's simply a bogus political target, not an optimum goal. And everybody thinks that it's based on a rational analysis. It's not, it's just a good judgment as to what was politically appropriate in 1984. And, you know, if you go around the world, you discover that actually there's an amazing relationship except I discovered a few weeks ago in the Caribbean that they were fatter than you predict from the fat intake 
and to my astonishment I had to be told that I'd forgotten about the sugarcane of the Caribbean. And <coughs> there are two things that really drive the obesity epidemic from a, from a dietary point of view. It's energy density dominated by fats and sugars, as I'll show you in a second. And so I could have put in the Chinese, I should have put in the Chinese. I have an arrow now, the Chinese are up to 30% in Beijing. And it's the fastest moving epidemic of hypertension and diabetes that's being documented systematically wonderfully well by the Chinese who are doing nothing about it. And here's the oil consumption going sky high. And the palm oil, Institute, uh, palm oil people of Malaysia are doing brilliantly. It's one of the biggest exports of Malaysia. Well, you know, <coughs> what we've got to do is simply drop the fat intake. Here are the interquartile range that we put to the European group seven years ago. So 25% of the population in uh, Greece, or Belgium, or Austria, Netherlands, Finland, Italy, Sweden, Germany. I mean, the whole of the population, essentially, is completely off target, even using the 30% value, okay? <coughs> so we're completely out. Therefore, in public health terms, you cannot talk. In fact, it's been calculated that about 5 to 6% of the total population is on the optimum diet. So all this nonsense about educating people to eat better. What do you mean by better? What's your standard? You have practically nobody in the population who actually qualifies, so actually the total population hasn't a clue how they should be eating. I'm going to start a riot, I can see. And fibre and folic acid go for the same. And here's uh, Andrew Prentice's rather neat thing, where if you go up in fat intake and have typical fast foods, uh, your fat content obviously goes up, and so does the so-called energy density. And now energy density is coming in powerfully, because if you surreptitiously manipulate the density of a product so that you quietly stack in more calories, <coughs> this is the human brain failing to alter the the total grams of food eaten, therefore up goes their energy intake. So actually telling people, just cut down a bit, means nothing, unless you know exactly what's in that food. And it gets worse, and here I'm going to start <coughs> making trouble. And I hope there's somebody in the economics. I spent all my time talking economics. Because, and here's dear old Adam with the wonderful French data, showing that if you want to um, get some food, <coughs> we're advocating that people should eat vegetables, fish, fruit, and you can be like the Mediterraneans, okay? <coughs> That's by far the most expensive. And please note it's a log scale for cost. And the cheapest thing you can get in the world, which gives you oodles of energy is oil and sugar, the precise things that eventually the brain searches for. Because the main driver for the brain is calories. It doesn't discriminate whether I've got a B12 deficient diet and therefore I automatically change my food choice. Nothing. The evidence is zero on that. But your brain is extremely good at making sure you have enough food.
if you need to understand what happened in the United States, Password Nation is a wonderful book, I think. And uh, I always put this slide in because I used to be for 16 years, for 8 years until I resigned, on the Toxicology Committee. <coughs> and if you took standard toxicological tests, you'd immediately ban those food products as lethal. We had neurotic de uh, debates about asbestos, cadmium, lead, and so on. Small repeated doses of a long time known to cause hazard. You deal with it. Repeated small doses of a long time cause massive burden of disease. But it's all behaviour, don't you understand? It's your food choice. Bizarre misunderstanding of what we're about in policy terms. So if you're going to change food consumption, what do you do? You follow the business analyses of every major food operator in the world. You've got to have something that tastes reasonable. And then these are the key. You sell everything on price. Some of you may have lived in Britain, and what do the supermarkets go for? Price. You make it available if you look at the spontaneous eating if you look at the availability physical availability it's not systematically true but it, if you talk to the top companies they want to saturate a market with the outlets with their products that is a key principle of how you get things organised if you look at the places where the supermarkets are cited it's all geared to actually a fundamental financial analysis and marketing is obvious, isn't it? And this is an intense political battle. So those of you who discovered that uh, Gordon Brown was late at the Davos meeting, having been flown in by helicopter, he was embarrassed because uh, the Queen of Jordan, of course, was waiting for him. But so was the new chair of Pepsi-Cola. They have enormous power. And I've been approached by board members of major companies where they favoured a particular policy I have, telling me they can be in to see a Prime Minister or the President of Europe within three to four days maximum, if only I can tell them what needs to be done. That's the level at which they operate. I'll skip this. It shows that even kids respond to price and so on and so forth. What you're seeing around the world in this transformation of food is an enormous brilliant financial economic plan. I had to chair a meeting of four key representatives of international food companies and beforehand, you know, because I know them well, I said, what's your highest priority? Within 20 seconds each, and I was just saying, you know, how are you getting on in business? I'm giving, forget about all this rubbish, tell me what, what's your priority in business? They all systematically, <coughs> without any prompting at all, came out with identical statements, getting into the third world. Here is the investment into Europe. That Europe is Poland, Czech Republic, Hungary and so on. 60% of all the direct investment into, the, into Central and Eastern Europe, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, was fast foods, confectionery, soft drinks. 60% of all foreign investment. So economics is overwhelming. 
uh, I want, that's all to do with trade. I'll just say that if you look at the projections for what's happening, we're going like crazy for more and more meat and beef consumption. Despite all the climate change, we've got to lock in to our arguments because otherwise we're going to be lost. What's happened as a result of the policies that our predecessors set out? You've had the most dramatic reduction in the world costs of the commodities that make us fattest. Collapse of the cost of sugar and oil. And that was a deliberate policy by my predecessor, Boyd Bull, at the Rabbit, because we knew that kids that were stunted and were thin, they got fatter on butter and oil, and they grew on meat and milk. And people hadn't taken that on board properly. But the whole of government policy and agricultural policy for 40 years post-war was food security based on agriculture being a priority for meat, milk, butter and sugar production. And it's, they've done brilliantly. <coughs> Analyses from um, Minneapolis of the uh, Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policies show that this is the effect on food costs of the systematic government policies I throw in the United States, but it could be the UK. Increase the relative cost of fruit and vegetables. Dramatic reduction in fat and soft drink price. Okay, so actually when we talk about what's happening in the world, we're failing to address some of the huge fundamental drivers of how companies get cheaper products because you put fat and oils in. <coughs> I could have updated this with, you know, the farm bill is the biggest story in Washington at the moment, apart from uh, the Florida elections. And, you know, here it is for Europe, okay. I mean, Europe and the United States between them are crucifying agriculture in the third world. It's quite incredible. So in the last few minutes, I'm going to tell you how to solve it. Here's the standard story. Tell everybody to do things. The evidence from Cochrane analyses is if you get doctors who are wonderful, don't you know, to help their patients to change their diet, you can get a public health effect on cholesterol and blood pressure, which is minute. And most of the evidence on health education is that it doesn't work. And so the question is, how do you change the toxic environment, as we call it? Uh, oh yes, this is one of two slides. In the UK, we made it clear to Derek Wallace, who's now in trouble, years ago, in his first report, that actually he ought to, I think he was there, were you kidding? We had to beat him up, because he was not going to even think about prevention. Then came a second report. Blow me down, he had to, in the second report, first second report said, smoking is activity. It's a massive problem, it went to Gordon Brown, but Tony Blair, of course, did, wasn't going to have any of that nonsense. And it's only this last September that Derek Wan was being very polite. said, you know, we really ought to concentrate on these things. It's a disaster. And this is the problem. Where are you going to intervene if you're trying to remedy what's been going on in the food chain? I adapted this from Karina Hawke's brilliant analysis. In fact, everybody assumes it's the farmers... And, in fact, it's huge, mega international companies 
that are out of control in terms of any national policy. But if you have national policies, you can do things. This is a cardiovascular response in Norway, where they change the price and the availability and the marketing of fruit and vegetables and so on. And that's the increase in heart disease, as we told everybody to eat a balanced diet and be sensible. That's the epidemic of chronic disease that started as a result of our wonderful advice. And then Cory Norum and his pals intervened with a huge series of government policies. Same, you know, all know about the North Karelia experience. Tremendous for men. Women ignored the smoking stuff. Blood pressures dropped, the equivalent of giving everybody a blood pressure pill. All public health, diet, physical activity. Cholesterol dropped by 15%. No drug statins involved. Phenomenal. And here's the drop in uh, Pekka gave me last week and substituted it. Now down to 90%. And isn't it interesting, for heart disease, cholesterol is the bigger contributor. This is the actual observed mortality. You can transform the health of a population if you get it right. And this has never been actually published, I've discovered only recently. Here, see there on the left, patients trebled in Finland. How did they do it? They made every food outlet in Finland provide vegetables in every canteen, everywhere and every restaurant. The vegetables were provided as part of the cost of the meal. And the salad bar was there and anybody could have it. So these old hopeless men with the highest heart disease rate, smoking like crazy, went into these canteens and actually said, I'm paying for this stuff. I never normally eat it. And they ended up showing the biggest change in food consumption that I've ever seen in any country in such a short time. Got it? That's the availability cost issue. In the Lancet this last couple of weeks, three weeks, You've seen chronic disease and some suggestions on salt and how it's done. This is the intervention on salt intake, but they fail to realise that you can actually have systematic progressive reductions on a <coughs> semi-legal basis, and this was used in part in Finland to have a huge reduction in salt intake, which contributes to reduction in, in hypertension. Here's the December issue of the Lancet, where I'd like to point out, which is the salt reduction. Here, the cost, if you go for voluntary salt reduction, for a 15% reduction, is pretty expensive compared with the other bits. Tobacco laws, if you introduce a law or a regulation that industry has to follow, or people in positions anyway have to follow, it's a highly cost-effective way of instituting public health. The most expensive is to actually involve the public in a lot of health education and local action. Let me keep skipping because I'm spotting that time. So you can alter everything. Here is a manip an analysis of purchasing patterns of different socioeconomic groups in Denmark <coughs> by the Food Economic Institute of Copenhagen. Small adjustments on the basis of observed costs of foods <coughs> led in the poorest section of the community to the biggest change, reduction in fat, sugar, increased fruit and vegetables. 
Governments haven't yet understood that they can do things on a cost-neutral basis in a proper way. I'll forget about marketing. Uh, you know about that. Um, <coughs> I'll forget about traffic light labelling, except to say we haven't done it properly. Mike and I have been discussing this. Unilever has now persuaded a power mine to go in and make slacker recommendations. We may be in trouble even on the traffic lights. The industry hates it. They want to have this sort of labelling, as in Tesco, completely unintelligible uh, and totally inappropriate for tackling obesity, which I can explain. Costs, lovely illustration. If you introduce a regulation banning television and you then use the data currently available to say how much would you gain, it is infinitely more cost effective than having other mechanisms that involve local action. Quite interesting. So I'll forget about this. This is how we developed our system. Everybody tells the individuals on the right to do things. They actually say it's pretty difficult, my working conditions are terrible. So you go for the workplace. Then you go for the community. They, the community says it's not us, Gov, it's the national policies. You then go to government and they say it's not us, you know. It's the European Union, they're, they're the devils. And so the question is, everybody passes the buck and the question is how do you operate? <laughs> and this is um, entirely down to Kim McPherson, I'm sure. Whenever I put that up, everybody bursts out laughing across the world and they think it's a glorious cop-out. Whereas I thought it was actually <coughs> quite interesting. Uh, I won't deal with transport, it's enormous. <coughs> Let me finish by saying, if you operate through a health agenda, in my view, you almost never get anywhere. Therefore, we are now operating, we've jumped over ministers of health, because it's these ministries that affect what happens, and therefore we go for Prime Ministers. And that is because if Tim Lobstein's analysis of policy development, ministers and treasury people are only have enormous, they control the world. They've got no interest in health really, unless it costs something. And you lot, you're brilliant, you're wonderful health professionals and advocates and teachers and scientists. And you have fantastic interest and no influence. Join the club. Things are happening in Europe. Health ministers only. They're trying to do something. We told them what to do. This is an analysis of using Boyd Swinburne's system of physical economic policy. But we amplified it by including much broader agenda. And doing it in this way for Ministry of Health and then for other ministries which are important. So you can implement these things. That was done five years ago. Nothing happens. So we're on the move. Prime Ministers, we've got 16 of them in the Caribbean in September. I got the President of Peru. These slides are all available. Uh, in, uh, when I was uh, there, in, and I'm going back then, three weeks' time, in, uh, in Lima, He's desperately trying to check, cope with it. Elsewhere, almost nothing happening. Even Singapore has abandoned its individual child obesity programme. And uh, Australia has just gone for a 10 billion diabetes prevention instead of obesity because it's not sexy enough. I put forward for the UK government 10 years ago 
a policy agreed by the Chief Medical Officer of Health. I don't know if you ever heard of Tessa Chow, a Minister of Public Health. She phoned me every three weeks saying she was about to imp implement this report. And I'm still waiting. Let's forget about this. You know, there are some things that you can do pretty easily in legislative terms, but the huge challenge is how do you get the political sway? And if you look across the world, how do you cope with Margaret Chan's uh, women's thing, women's point, which is crucial if you think about the life cycle. But in political terms, it's extremely difficult to get that concept through at a practical level. So for the cancer world, a few, a few weeks ago, four weeks ago now, I said actually you can manipulate heart disease much easier than you can cancer and obesity because you're locked into intrinsic major long-term problems. And the problem is that if you go, you have to have a systematic multi-level action and you cannot operate simply through the Ministry of Health. And in the UK very recently you've noticed that the government policy has handed it back to the Minister of Public Health as though she is going to be the controller. There's going to be an intersectoral committee which was asked for 20 years ago. Whether it works or not, I don't know, but my guess is that we're getting a long way further down the economist road before we get any action in the UK and in most other countries, actually. So we have, in conclusion, a massive problem because we are so constrained by the narrow focus on what needs to be done. Uh, King, now of Oxford again, was brilliant in linking this problem of obesity and chronic disease to the, as difficult a problem as climatic change. Because you have to have multiple interventions and you have to move on the basis of modelling and other analyses which are not backed up by intervention trials all the time. And you've got to move now because, particularly with obesity, you're in a locking process. You almost cannot reverse obesity. The brain adapts and keeps you fat. You do very well to get yourself down five kilos. You can eliminate diabetes in very severe obese people with bariatric surgery, 30 kilos weight loss. You're not going to get that because of brain systems. Therefore, we have to move now. And we have to move in every part of the world because of the big problem here. And the dilemma is how do you get there? And so we now decide that we have to go at a presidential level, which is now happening. Thank you.